Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. And you're tuning in for a very special episode today. I'm so excited. We are recording here with a live audience uh, on the shores of Tomales Bay in Northern California. Hello, everybody. Amazing. Um, We're so excited to be joined by two great guests today uh, here at Hog Island's Oyster Farm in Marshall, California. Um, And first, we're going to start all the way far away from me with our first John. uh, We have Hog Island, if we can say, do we have Hog Island royalty in the the house today, right? Um, Hog Island royalty or or also co-founder, John Finger. Now, John is a marine biologist who in 1983 decided to start an oyster farm right here in Marin County uh, with just five acres and the partnership of another marine biologist, Terry Sawyer, uh, Hog Island Oyster Company was born. We'll get more into the story of Hog Island, of course, but today John is a vocal advocate for sustainable aquaculture and farm shellfish, and we're so excited to have you, John Finger. All right. Thank you all. Thank you all for coming. This is great. And then uh, right in between us, um, we have another John. We're joined by Chef John Ash, sometimes called the father of wine country cuisine. John opened his eponymous restaurant, John Ash and Company, in Santa Rosa in 1980, right before Hog Island was born, right around the same time here. Uh, Over the past several decades, John has run restaurants, hosted radio and TV shows, and authored cookbooks, including the one that we're here to celebrate today, which uh, is beautiful, the Hog Island Book of Fish and seafood. His approach to culinary arts has also focused on sustainable practices, and in 2014, he was named the Sustainable Seafood Educator of the Year by the Monterey Bay Aquarium. So for those of you who are listening in, our guests today here at Hog Island are enjoying a few bites from this new cookbook, including some grilled oysters with chipotle bourbon butter. The book includes more than 250 recipes from cuisines around the world, as well as illustrated guides to shucking oysters, opening clams, filleting fish, and more. So with that, we want to give a big Big welcome, John and John. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us on Salt and Thank you. Well, I think we're going to have a great conversation today, and what a beautiful setting to be here on the farm um, talking about the things we want to talk about today, aquaculture, uh, California cuisine, cooking with shellfish and seafood. Um, and so I thought we'd just start with how you opened the book, which is the phrase, we are blessed. It The book literally, um, for those of you who haven't opened it yet, the first words in there are, we are blessed. Uh, And then it goes on to say, look at all the treasures from the waters that we're so lucky to be able to share. So before we get into the history and the cuisine and all of that, I just wanted to take a moment to reflect on that. And both of you have had, you know, really revered careers, farming, culinary arts. What makes this spot and this part of the the world so special? Well, I, I think I should let John, because you are the one who found this spot. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and also, you have to tell them why, why it's called Hog Island. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, thanks, thanks, John. I, th- I think oysters. And you can say this about some other foods, but I really think about it. oysters are more about place than any other food that I can think of. I mean, we just talked about, you know, gave a tour to these folks here about about the whys of, of what we do and how it works, and and. And a, and a bay and, and a estuary in those places just are just such incredible places in general. I feel really blessed in, as well that I've been able to do what I've done all these years and that, that you get to be in these kinds of places. Um, I mean, Tomales Bay is, is, 
I mean, look, it's nice to be close to a metropolitan area where you have a good market. That 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 matters, sure. you know. But to have a place that's that's as as well taken care of of this this area because the land, you know, what happens in the land around this bay matters in terms of the health of the bay, and it's just such a gorgeous spot. I mean, we. We used to have a saying when we'd work out there because sometimes when you're working the tide, you have a limited amount of time and you got to head down, you're working as fast as you can. And it's like, stop, stop. Look where you work. Everybody take a few seconds and look around because, and that's true for a lot of the places that, that really good shellfish are raised. And that's the fun part about this business. We have beautiful bays in this country and around the world that produce really, really great food all on their own. Yeah. You know. So where did Hog Island come from? Ah, the name Hog Island. We'll do that, but then I want to ask you, John yeah. Ash, too, the, what makes this place so special. But tell us what's yeah, so, first. Yeah, so we, we'll we called the company Hog Island in the beginning yeah. because there's a little island up the bay here where our first five acres is. You know, we currently have 160 acres, but that first five acres was very close to Hog Island, and we wanted a name that people would remember. And, um, Back then, I was working in the wholesale business. You know, you had to work another job for five years before I, I took any money out of the company. And uh, a lot of the wholesalers I talked to thought, like, oh, that's a horrible name. People think about pigs and dirt and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, but we felt it was iconic. It had a ring to it. And the story we heard is that a ship wrecked out there on the island and some pigs got loose for a week or a day or a year, depending on the story. And fast forward many, many years and there are hog islands in, in lots of other bays, and we've actually ran into this issue. We have the trademark in the name Hog Island for both restaurants and for shellfish, and we've had to talk to people about you can't call your oysters Hog Islands. I'm sorry, but right. hot, those islands were used essentially as a place where settlers would keep pigs because while pigs can fly, they can't swim. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, John Ash. What, what makes yeah. this face? What this part of the country well, so I, special? Well, I think I think, and this this is something John probably talked to you a bit on your tour. Is the each spot on Earth has pr provides different flavors, different d different things in the products that are produced there. I I was on the phone today talking with a friend of mine in New Jersey who was saying, "Oh." Pff, you know, Jersey tomatoes are so much better than California tomatoes. Uh, and they're certainly different whether they're better or not, is, I guess, <laughs> a, is a, a question you could do. Or Georgia peaches are better than uh, California peaches, that kind of stuff. But the, the place that these things are grown, and this is certainly true of oysters, uh, are a reflection of what you get in the final product. And I will say that when I... When John and I first got to know each other with your little little property out here, and it was just you and Terry and Michael who were doing everything. They were just working their butts off uh, to to try to establish this farm. Uh, it was it was at a, at a time back in 1980 when oysters, hard to believe now looking at all of you, uh, that oysters were kind of unknown to most Americans, unless you happen to come from the Northeast, which John is from. Uh, people didn't know very much about them. And it took, it took a while for people to try them. It took, uh, the work of a, of a lot of chefs, people like Judy Rogers and, and others and me, uh, <laughs> to put them on the menu and really teach people, uh, about the joys of eating them, whether raw or cooked or whatever it was. 
And over that time, I think it was Hog Island who was really establishing a ground place for great oysters to come from. And people began to recognize that, uh, I, I think for all of you who are old enough to remember, uh, if you went down to New Orleans or went to Florida, I mean, they, they sell a lot of oysters there, but they're not very good. <laughs> uh, they're, they're fine. They're just different uh, than the oysters. Just like the peaches and the Just like the peaches, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to each their own. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it, it, it was a business that grew over time. More and more people got hooked on, uh, trying oysters, buying them, trying them in different ways. And so as a chef, it was, it was extraordinarily great opportunity to kind of show people what the, uh, what the potential could be. My training and background a long, long time ago was in France. And of course, the French have had a love affair with oysters forever. Uh, when you go down that, uh, west coast of, uh, of France and stop at all of those amazing places. And John goes there occasionally too to pick up on what, you know, new techniques, what they're doing and to share share with them what we're doing here it's like oh so this is this is what eating oysters is all about yeah back to the early days john finger um so you started before we you know before chefs become fans and judy rogers and chez panisse and john ash and everyone's buying oysters from you very scrappy right you started like 500 bucks borrowed yeah, a boat from a yeah. friend like what was your vision and how did it how did it start well, it's interesting. The, the, I think I mentioned earlier. So, you know, I, I grew up in the East End, Long Island, New York, fishing, clamming, hunting, went to school for marine biology, loved all types of seafood except oysters. They were the only seafood <laughs> I didn't eat. And How ironic. I wanted to, I could see that aquaculture was the wave of the future. The wild fisheries of the world were not going to be able to keep up. I wanted to raise striped bass or salmon or trout. Came out here. As an in- internship in California, was a surfer. Thought, hmm, California. I could live in California for a couple of years, and that was in 1979. And then uh, started knocking on doors and got a job for an oyster company based in Moss Landing, run by a big corporation. Didn't like that, but worked there two and a half years and fell in love with the environmental connection that that oyster farming is. It really is, like I said, about place and reading the bay and knowing what the shellfish need and what parts of the bay produce the best oysters or even types of oysters. And so um, we decided to start it out here. And um, I had a good friend at the time who I'd gone to college with who was uh, starting a distribution business specializing in the same thing we believed in, high-quality farm-raised shellfish. His name was Bill Marinelli. And uh, Billy and I knew each other from when we were 18 years old. And he was saying, like, look, you know, nobody's doing what you and I know can be done. You know, when I had visited Europe a little bit and this whole idea of back in the day, Pacific oysters out here were deemed unsuitable for eating raw in a half shell. And the main reason that was is because how they were grown. They were grown in clusters. And by the time you could break a single oyster off, they were close to a foot long. So, of course, that's not suitable for raw in a half shell. And so everybody out here, when we first started, was serving Blue Point oysters on the menu, which drove me crazy because Blue Point Long Island was been horribly polluted for 40 years. You, you wouldn't dare eat an oyster out of there. Now they've actually improved some things. There's actually people growing oysters, but they were coming from Delaware, from, from Chesapeake, from all sorts of different places back there. And, and we felt we could do better. 
Um, so we're producing this single Pacific oyster, a small one, you know, based on how we, our techniques to be able to produce a suitable Pacific oyster. But it was an uphill battle because people were like, no, I don't, I'm not interested in that. And we got a few people like John, like Judy Rogers, like Alice Waters to say, yeah, we like what you're doing. And our famous stroke of genius was, can you please put them on the menu as Hog Islands? Yeah, right. And they did. And, and next thing I know, I've got a magazine at, you know, wanting to find out about who these crazy guys are growing oysters up here. So tell them about Martha. <laughs> about Martha. <laughs> <laughs> so we've gotten, you know, we've gotten a, a lot of press over the years. I, I, I attribute some of that to right time, right place. You know, we were starting this in the early 80s, which is the California food movement. Right. We were producing a quality product in in the, in the zone that people wanted that, so we garnered a lot of attention. And um, as John says, we had we had uh, Martha Stewart. First, we were in her magazine, and she didn't come out for that. But then she actually came out for a uh, a, uh, a a video shoot out on the farm here. And um, yeah. yeah, I don't know how. <laughs> yeah, she <laughs> she fell down. She got wet. wet. She got a low grade <laughs> shock. There's all bunch of stuff happened there, but oh, no. you know, I won't go into that right now. But it was, yeah, no. it, it's it's a story. But it was an, an adventure. It was an adventure. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, that's great. I I think the other thing that drew me originally, the well, two things that drew me to Hog Island originally were, were I love oysters, and after eating, uh, and you have a important name that that modifies the Hog Island name, and that's Hog Island Sweetwater Oysters. That's, that's our name for our Pacific yeah, oyster. We yeah. wanted to establish that we were growing something different. So it's Hog Island Sweetwater is the name for our Pacific oyster. And the deal yeah, is that, that sounds, sounds delicious. Right. <laughs> it's good, uh, I've got to try it. Yeah, I've got to see what that's, what that's uh, all about. And as I say, in this growing understanding and growing uh, interest on the part of American consumers about oysters. I think I think the other part of the genius thing was to have this spot where people could come, and uh, the weather's not always like it is today. <laughs> it's but, a nice day. Uh, yeah. But come and uh, in the early days, this area was there were some picnic tables, some beat up old uh, Weber grills, Weber yeah. grills, yeah. and you could buy oysters and grill them yourself. And, yeah, and uh, and. It was it was quite an experience. The other thing is that you brought on board a group of people of investors who were also very savvy, especially among uh, winery owners yep. and pe mm. people like that who understood what it meant to take a, a a kind of rare item and and make make people want it. I joined Hog Island. I I guess I can tell this story. Uh, bought shares of Hog, Hog Island, partly because I really loved what uh, was going on here, uh, but also because in those days, uh, they didn't make any money. So, <laughs> so we didn't, we didn't get dividends or any of that kind of stuff. But the whole reason, and this sustained a lot of people for a number of years, a couple of time, times a year, they would uh, throw big oyster bashes out here, and you could come and eat as many oysters as you possibly could eat. Uh, until you, so that was the reason to be a shareholder. Right. It wasn't about making money. <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice benefit for sure. Yeah, yeah. So the so the Hog Island Sweetwater is born, but you kind of alluded to this a little bit. There's it's a Pacific oyster. There's people may not know. There's only five 
variety? Would we call it a well, variety? The, or there's five species, I guess, in, of in North America, in North America, yeah, that are commercially grown. Yeah, but the as you as you told us earlier too, there's so much variance in even just different parts of a, the same bay that. Uh, the sweet water is such a unique product, right? Yes. Purely it, because of the miroir, you call it. Yeah, and it, and great to remind me of that because we we didn't talk about that earlier. But a lot of people sometimes even, and we try to train our staff this way because you have oysters somewhere and you're like, I really like that oyster. What do I need to remember about that oyster? And the wine analogy goes all the way through this. So first and foremost, it's the variety. So. The, you know, we grow the the Hagan Sweetwater, which is a Pacific here. We grow the Kumamoto. We grow. Uh, the French hog, which is our name for our European flat oyster here. We grow the, the hog on Atlantic, which is our Eastern oyster. Side by side, they all taste differently, just like the different varietals of wine, because they uptake from minerals differently at different rates that out of the seawater. And they also select different species of phytoplankton. So all that good food that's out there, that microscopic algae isn't one type. It's various types, and they have different lipid contents, and the Atlantic likes the green ones, the Pacific likes the reds, and that will make a difference. So that, that, that's a varietal difference. But beyond that is like what you said is, our, is the miroir, just like terroir. Every bay is different depending on the land that's around it, you know, more mineral-rich, less mineral-rich, more, more forested, grassy. All those overtones will come through in, the, in what we call the miroir. So even our oysters from Humboldt Bay, we're growing – Kumamoto's and Pacific's up there. We are not going to call those. Those are not Hog Island Sweetwaters. Right. Those, those will be actually, actually, we're going to be calling them um, Hog Island High Waters. Okay. Which is, and not because of, it's in Humboldt, because we're actually growing, <laughs> we're actually growing them a bit higher than anybody else in Humboldt Bay is growing them. Okay. And, and it's so it Maybe made, it's made, made, made some sense there, you know. So because that's, it, it'll be distinct from the Hog Island Sweetwater. It'll be a different oyster. Yeah. Well, I know the two of you for sure, and maybe me too, could talk about oysters all day, but let's get a little bigger, right? Because the book is the book of the Hog Island book of fish and seafood. You note in the book too that today 85% of the world's wild fisheries are either fully fished or overfished. When we talk about sustainable aquaculture, um, when we talk about farming fish, farmed fish, farmed shellfish, there can some, you see headlines, right? The criticisms, don't eat farmed fish, don't eat farmed products. Can we talk about that, where we are with that sort of sure. conversation? I, I, I'll say, uh, I'll mention one thing. I've been associated with the Monterey Bay Aquarium right. for a number of years. And Monterey, gosh, well, 15, 20 years ago, sort of said, the future of fish, shellfish, finfish, all of those things in America is not in the wild. It's from farming. And uh, they, they've been right because we've sort of tapped out the seas. You know, we've over, overfished it, sometimes not done a very good job of preserving uh, what's there. So farming is a way of keeping alive for future generations uh, these wonderful uh, treasures. And the other thing which you should talk about is the, the book it isn't uh, only a book about oysters. It could be. Uh, but we took the bigger route there and talked about the whole world of fin fishes in part because with the COVID situation, uh, Hog Island had to, had to spin and, yeah. and change, uh, to be able to compete. Uh, suddenly people who were buying oysters were either not buying oysters or going out of business or, uh, whatever that was. And over the years, you had established such great contacts and friends with finfish and other 
kinds of uh, fish, uh, both in the wild and on farms, that it made sense to make this a, a bigger book. And also with the advent of the uh, oyster bars, which serve a, a lot of oysters, but they also serve a lot of other fishes too, from friends of Hog Island. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, I'll add to that. I mean, we, we, with the restaurants now, we've, you know, including here, we've got five locations. I mean, we sell a lot of fish and we're very particular about what fish we sell. You know, the thing to say in general about farmed and wild and all that kind of stuff, and, it, and it's hard to make generalizations, but the lower on the food chain you eat, the better. The lower on the food chain, whether you're farming or fishing something, the easier it is to be sustainable. The higher up the food chain you go, whether it's, it's bluefin tuna on the wild side versus, you know, maybe some, some salmon on the, on the farm side. But the fact of the matter is, as John said, we are going to have to learn how to farm more seafood to keep up. And there have been a lot of mistakes made with, with fish farming. That doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are people working on better ways to farm certain species of fish than they have been in the past. Someone talked earlier, even, even our shellfish business, I talked about early, you know, 100, 100 plus years ago, they brought oysters from the East Coast here. They brought oysters from Japan over here. They introduced pests when they did that. We no longer do that. You know, if we bring in seed even from another area, it's got to have two years of disease and pest-free history. We all learn how we can do this better. So there's a great program down at UCSB at University of California, Santa Barbara, at the Bren School of the Environment that really leans into the resource use for various food production systems. When one, you can't beat growing animal protein the way we do. It's about the most sustainable way you can grow animal protein. Seaweed, the same thing. You know, row crops, yeah, vegetables are good, but fish farm, you know, because you're, what, fish are cold-blooded, so growing fish in, in water versus growing animal protein on land is way more sustainable. So again, how do we learn to do it better? Because on the big picture, it's going to matter that we're not using up as much energy and fresh water and feed and fertilizer to do these things. So. Yeah. So... One of the things that Hog Island became famous or has become famous for is this whole focus on sustainability. And I guess you can define what we mean by sustainability, but it's doing things in a wholesome and ethical way, you know, preserving uh, whatever's happening here so that the next generation or, or two will will have them too. So a big part of the book is Hog Island's commitment to sustainability and how that's done. Yeah, and I, I think we talk in the book, we don't lay that all out for you in detail. I mean, there are lots of resources out there that talk about that. And what we even tell our own chefs and our own staff is ask questions till you are satisfied that it meets, because there's lots of different ways to talk about sustainability and these kinds of things. But we should all be asking questions about where our food comes from. And do we know enough about that to feel good about eating that piece of fish or having that steak or this vegetable, or yeah. whatever. Yeah, you offer some good tips in the book, like um, st starting with good science, making sure you're checking your sources, lower on the food chain, all these good tips. Anything else like consumers should know, home cooks who are listening, sourcing fish and seafood. Well, I'll, I'll offer one thought, and John I know has some too. It's important to know who you're buying it from, whether it's a farmer or a retailer, or whatever it is, you have to kind of get into their head. Uh, and if they're com committed to 
uh, doing things in an ethical way, then that's the place you start. So I think to your point, asking questions is critically important and, and dealing with those people who put their thoughts out uh, so that you can judge them by what they do. There, There's a lot of... that. I, I shouldn't say this, but uh, John can confirm it. <laughs> the uh, seafood business in general has been one of the most corrupt business. I mean, when you look at the long history of seafood, one of the most corrupt businesses in the world from the standpoint of both how things are harvested, how they're named, how they're stored, how they're packaged, how they're handled, uh, all of that stuff. And there are a number of really interesting books that have been written uh, on this subject. So that's why the more you can know about all of that, the better off you're going to be. Yeah. And one of the, somebody that you can count on, which is great, is Hong Kong. Ah, gee. That's right. We, we could also talk uh, at length about climate change too, but one thing that really caught my attention when I was looking through the book is octopus, squid, they're, they're some of the few varieties that are not being impacted in terms of their population by some of the climate degradation that's taking place, right? Yeah, I mean, there will be, as the climate change, there are going to be winners as well as losers. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we might all be eating jellyfish in another 10 years <laughs> sure. from now, you know, that, that, that might be where this is all headed. But, but yeah, I think, you know, I mean, the good thing about, about, you know, our country, I, th I, I think, is that we do have a pretty robust, you know, fisheries management system in place where we, we are getting good data out there. And it's hard sometimes. I mean, there are fishermen and fishing communities that are suffering because things are changing. Um, you know, so there's, there's, there's that part of it as well, the human part of it. But, um, you know, we do know a lot about how the fish stocks are doing. And there are success stories as well. You know, one of the ones around here is, is the local halibut, you know, California halibut. You know, when I started out here, nobody fished for halibut out here. Nobody caught was, was fishing for them commercially because they used to fish for them with gill nets, right? Yeah. They outlawed the gill nets, and now we have this really wonderful, vibrant hook and line halibut fishery, which is we buy sometimes almost all the hook and line halibut in the, in the Bay Area, but it's small boat, it's sustainable, it's a great way, but that happened because they did their research, they did the science, they said, this is impacting, let's do away with this fishing method. You know, the same for California white sea bass. There are there are those success stories where there's good management in place. So, you divide the book uh, by type of fish, and there's a chapter on tinned fish, which I think is finally maybe having its moment in America. We're getting there. We're, we are there. I don't know. But do you, have you noticed that either of you that it feels like we are having this tinned fish moment in America where it's it's trendy? People are seeking it out. People are learning how to use it. Oh, it's it's extraordinary, actually. For anybody who's interested, I just wrote a piece for my local newspaper, the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, on uh, tinfish. And it was so much fun gathering it. It's much more known and popular around the Mediterranean, especially in Spain and Portugal, well, yeah. and, uh, where it's used extensively. In part, it's because it's uh, easy to transport. It's uh, There are a lot of good things about it. My My grandmother who was an amazing cook, she she said to me, I lived in Colorado up in the mountains, anytime we went hunting or fishing, we had to have a, a can of tin fish with us because it was survival food. <laughs> and it's still it's still that way, you know, in, in many ways. Yeah. 
You also note in the book that, you know, some home cooks, maybe stereotypically, but some home cooks may be reluctant to use seafood if they're not familiar with with cooking it, that there's this fear of you're going to mess it up, that it's expensive, you don't want to invest in something that you don't know it's going to turn out. How do you sort of support home cooks in approaching cooking with new fish, new shellfish? Well, it's not to be so so worried about it. Sure. I I think if there's one thing to remember in cooking seafood, that's finfish, shellfish, whatever it is, is don't overcook it. If you're going to cook it, maybe cook it a bit on the undercook side because it'll continue to cook as it sits and all of that. It, it's not that difficult. And the, the great thing about uh, cooking fish and shellfish is that it's fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's easy. Yeah. Uh, it's, and, and that you're also supporting this whole movement toward sustainable eating and all of that stuff. John probably mentioned down here the importance of oysters, for example, in terms of cleaning up the water. You know, the what is it, 50 gallons a day? Yeah, 50 gallons a day for one oyster. Uh, yeah. oyster That's what they filter, filter. Yeah. One, one single oyster. Yeah, yeah a full-grown Pacific oyster. And, you know, we talked a little bit about that down there, that, that you know, in, in bays, you have productive waters, you have algae blooms happening. If you don't have a sufficient amount of filter feeders, the whole system can get out of whack. You, you know, so they're, that's what I love about it. They're part of a well-functioning ecosystem. They also provide habitat. All the nooks and crannies that would be in an oyster reef are in a bag of our oysters. And we, we had a uh, Sea Grant student about 15 years ago take a 200 micron mesh bag around one bag of oysters and counted over 100 species of plants and animals in one bag of oysters. Wow. That's biodiversity. That's what we should be after when we're producing food, yeah. stuff like that. That's incredible. I, I know that a book like this, it's I don't want to call it a Bible, but it, it's very comprehensive. Can, you, can I call can. it a Bible? Sure. Okay. All right. We'll call it a Bible. Right. It's very yes. comprehensive. Over that, 250 there, there recipes. There go sales. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. you got to get the Bible. Um, <laughs> but, you know, seafood, fish, consumption all around the world. How, how did you sort of tackle a project like this where you bring in recipes from around the world? I mean, we have everything from California cuisine, very nicely represented, of course, but also takoyaki. We have There's a Thai crab curry, there's a laksa, there's so much of that international global influence. You also have classic dishes, right? The chipino, you have oysters Rockefeller. Like, how do you tackle a book of this magnitude and decide what, what belongs in here? Well, it was a lot of fun. Okay, yeah, no, sure. No, which means we needed to fix everything to be able to taste it and eat it. But the rest of the world, in America, again, we're we're just beginning to learn about seafood, about the potential for seafood. The rest of the world, Asia, the Mediterranean, even South America, have been ahead of the game for a long time. So it's great to go sort of see what they're doing. And one of the things we also did in the book, and they're they're identified, is each of the chefs for each of the restaurants, the Hog Island restaurants, contributed a recipe or recipes uh, to the book because here they are. They're dealing with it every day and they're creating new things. They're trying new things that, you know, us old timers haven't even thought of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great to have that innovation in there. There's also a recipe that is not maybe so innovative, but speaks to a technique that used to be used that I was so intrigued when I read about. The, it's this recipe for mussels that are cooked with pine needles. Yeah, can you can you tell us how that how that worked? Yeah, it's in a, in France. It's called Eclade. Okay, E C L A D E. And what they do is they the 
muscles in France tend to be smaller. They don't like growing their muscles, you know, larger. So they're smaller muscles, but they arrange them on a on a big slab of wood. All of them with the, with the the hinge side or where the beard comes out down. So they range them all like in a beautiful spiral, even. And it takes time and stuff. And then they pile pine needles all over the top of it. You know, like you know, two feet high right. and light it on fire. And light the whole just, stack on fire. Light the whole stack on fire, and it literally smokes the muscles. Wow. And if they're all face down, they, no ashes get inside. Uh huh. And then everybody just, you know, you have your glass of wine or your beer, you're all around this big slab of wood that's still sort of. And, and the smoking. juices are preserved. So yeah. then you can pick these things and you know, knock off the burned up yeah, it's, pine it's, needles. Yeah, it's, it's a really, yeah. really fun thing. Thought about trying it around here. We got to pick the right time of year. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, got to be careful. Um, okay. Well, you know, it, it'd be. I'd love if we could go into depth in so many of these topics. It's hard in you know a thirty-minute conversation. I want to ask what's what's next, both for Hog Island for aquaculture. I know um, we talked a little bit about seaweed and algae. What's next for sort of what should people be paying attention to? Where do you see us going from here? So you should talk a bit about seaweed. Yeah. Yeah. So so. Um, Seaweed is definitely something in the future for us. We we went through a couple year process here to get the the ability and permits to be able to harvest uh, seaweed off of our gear. And again, it's one of those foods that, if, again, if you look at again not not me, but you know people like you know Professor Gaines from UCSB, people talking about if you look at overall footprint, water resource use, all that kind of stuff. It's like we have to look at this more. This is a great source of protein and minerals and all this kind of stuff. So because we're putting hard gear out there things grow on it like we mentioned and we have three varieties of seaweed that grow all over our gear here in the summertime one is a uh porpyra which is essentially nori sheets and sheets of nori um we also get grassalaria which is similar to ogo or seaweed salad in a in a hawaiian or japanese restaurant and then we also get um ulva which is sea lettuce okay yeah and we actually did a fun thing here we actually um I had Eric Pear out here once. Oh, very fun. And he saw that out there. And we came back in and made a whole salad with, with that. He was all over it. So so we're now experimenting with harvesting those. What of that can we sell fresh? What are the drying techniques to learn to be able to dry a property, to make it shelf-stable? Because, again, the, the harvest window for the nori out here is about four months. So harvesting as much as we can. Right. There's also compost applications. We've been working with ranchers. Some people may have heard about you know, reducing methane production from cattle by putting, introducing some red seaweeds into their feed. It's a big, big deal. Um, up in Humboldt Bay, we've been involved in a kelp project up there, as well as we uh, sublease some area to some, a, a couple who are growing dulse in tanks up there. So we're trying to incorporate all those into our menus and think, how can we utilize this more? Because it's, it, it's happening. And seaweed, by the way, is a great carbon sink. It's a great way to buffer seawater as well. So we like growing, having seaweed growing around our oysters because it helps with the overall, you know, ocean and seawater chemistry. Sure. Yeah. Well, we're a show on cookbooks, so we always ask all of our guests a little bit about cookbooks. So I'm going to ask you a cookbook question, um, and then we always end with a little game. So I'm going to ask you the question, and I'll get the game ready while, while we're hearing your answers. What cookbook, is there a particular cookbook or uh, cookbook author or something that really just inspired you over the course of your career? John Finger, as you were starting this company as an avid home cook, John Ash as a professional chef. Like, tell us a little bit about the role cookbooks had on you. So it, it is that I mentioned her. I forget which recipe of hers I stole 
uh, but there, there's one of them. There was an amazing, she's sort of called by many, though she's a completely different personality, the Julia Child of Italy, and her name is Ada Boni, B-O-N-I. And you can still find her books, uh, but she epitomized more than anybody I could imagine the cooking of Italy. Simple, top-notch ingredients, not fussy, could care less about presentation and all of that stuff. Uh, so if you have a chance, you might uh, you might look up uh, Ada Boni. That's a great recommendation. John Finger? For, for me, you know, we, we talked earlier a little bit. I mean, I, I, I definitely utilize the, the Zuni cookbook, you know, on a, on a semi-regular basis. But the one for me that may, really made the difference, and I spoke about it earlier, I grew up in a big family, one of the oldest of six. I have five sisters. The only reason I'm alive today is I'm the oldest. So, um, <laughs> But I uh, grew up cooking and liking food, and when I went away to college, my grandmother bought me the Fannie Farmer cookbook. And I still use recipes out of that cookbook, you know, yeah. today. So, <laughs> real impact. It's and it's so nice that you have it still. It's yeah, great. it's great that Fanny Farm. The last edition of it was uh, revised by Marion Cunningham, who was an amazing soul who lived, who's now passed away, but lived in the Bay Area, and she was the one who uh, took that on because it was kind of a funny. Oh yeah, like it's a <laughs> church ladies' book or something in the beginning, you know. But, uh, but it, yeah, it's a, it's a great book, but a real impact on so many people. We oh, yeah, we hear yeah, yeah. we hear that book named by so many of our, our guests. So, well, we always end with little games. So I thought today we'd have a, a fish seafood game. Uh, we've got four types of cards here. So I'm going to have each of you draw one of each four, and then you can add any fish or seafood you want to that. But tell us what you might make if that's what you're working with. So you show up at your kitchen. That's what's on the counter in front of you. What would you make for dinner that night? How does that sound? Uh, okay. So we've got proteins, which are you know additional proteins, vegetables, self-explanatory. You'll get a flavor card, which is going to be herbs or spices, that sort of thing. And then the the last card here you'll get is a secret ingredient, so a little bit of a wild card to <laughs> maybe throw you off a bit. So I'll come by and let you each draw one of the four. So do we have to put all of these together in one dish? You know, you get you get to choose if you want to make it one dish or you can course it out a little bit. Um, and if you drew well with the protein, you may have already gotten a fish or seafood. And if not, feel free to add a fish or seafood so we can keep it on theme oh, today. Oh. Um, and does, does anybody have a preference who wants to go first? I'll go because you're going to do way better at this than I am. <laughs> all right, John Finger, you're, you're up first. <laughs> I'll give it a well, shot. Tell us I've what you're working this. with first. So I'm working with uh, pork. Okay. My secret ingredient is grape jelly. Oh. Uh, my vegetable is tomato. Okay. Hopefully a Jersey tomato and not and a California yeah, tomato. And my, <laughs> and my flavor is cinnamon. Ah, oh, okay. So that's a tough one here for me. So and can I would, we add I would, some fish or seafood to And we got to add some too, fish right? and seafood. So that's a it, – it's funny. When I saw the cinnamon, the thing that came up was when I was in college on the, out by South Hamden, Long Island, I worked in a Greek restaurant. And there was a, a shrimp dish, and I can never pronounce it. It was like shrimp torquiliamo or something like that that had a reduced tomato sauce with herbs. And one of them might have been cinnamon. It was this all-spicy thing. And then you, you had this sort of sweet, sweet tomato-based thing, butterfly shrimp that we put on under the salamander, and then I finished off with sliced feta on the top of it, oh, and that was good. And then on the, on the other one, I would just I I love the grill. I would I would definitely grill the pork chops and do a great 
jelly reduction. There we sauce go. And put yeah. over the top of it. Yeah, a little pork, a little shrimp. Yeah, a little surfing surfing turf maybe. Land and sea. So, so nice let's work. Look okay. for that on the Hog Island. <laughs> yeah, coming soon to the Hog Island menu near you. Uh, okay, John Ash, what are you working with? Well, this is pretty weird. So the protein was turkey. Okay. You know, and you think oh, turkey. What do you do? You just roast a turkey. Right. But actually, you don't. There are all kinds of uh, right. amazing things you can do with the turkey, and I I could work in the rest of these ingredients into that and that is to take turkey breast and uh bone it pound it gently so that you have a uh a cutlet like a cutlet yeah. thank you <laughs> thank you and then saute it in butter uh along with mint which is the the aromatic the flavor ingredient that i got and of course the world of mint is Gigantic, as you all know, uh, with both Asian mints and all of the other mints that are out there. The, uh, the vegetable was cabbage. And I love cabbage. I think it's one of the, uh, often one of the vegetables that's not given, uh, the, its proper due. And the secret ingredient was dashi. Uh, oh, for, okay. For what, if you know what dashi is, dashi is the primary cooking, uh, liquid uh in japanese cooking which is made generally with kombu uh, seaweed uh and uh dried uh tuna skipjack tuna that's been smoked that's shaved and all of those go in and it doesn't cook very long but it's the it's the flavor in japanese soups and sauces all of that kind of stuff so what i would do is take my turkey cutlet i'd saute that sucker uh and then the rest of these ingredients i would add just at the very end uh to do that to have a kind of japanese inspired uh turkey ingredient so like a dashi pan sauce sort of with yeah, the turkey yeah 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 it could even be a broth okay you know, sure which which would be great yeah and if i if i got to pick a uh, a seafood, my favorite, John knows, is uh, the fish called, which we catch here on our coast, black cod, which is also known as sable fish or butterfish. Uh, its great virtue is, and you can you can get it. You have you sell it from time to time. Its great virtue is, it gets its name butterfish because it's very high in fat, and as as a result of that, you can't overcook it. Uh, you can put it in a pan, even if it falls apart, it's still delicious. Yeah. So, so that that would be the thing I might substitute. Delicious. Well, you you both drew well, I think, and did pretty well, and nobody got the dreaded gummy bear card, which is always a relief. <laughs> so, <laughs> be thankful for that. But um, thank you so much, John Finger, John Ash, our, our, our wonderful, wonderful audience here today. today. It's been a great afternoon at Hog Island Oyster Company. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. If you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on Apple Podcasts. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Clea Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney, and the Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers digital and in-person classes for home cooks, and you can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to our friend Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. 
We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. 